The menu for this evening's program. Japan invades New Guinea. Russia and Prussia partition Poland, part two. And Milton Keynes, a town or farmland. And later in the program, we'll find out why William III hates shaving. Those are the headlines. You want me to read those again? News bang, taking the pulse of the times with a stethoscope of facts. In 1942. On this day in 1942, the Japanese military invaded New Britain, a small island off the coast of New Guinea, which was then under Australian rule. It was a dark time for the Allies, who were still reeling from the outbreak of World War II three years earlier. The war, which lasted until 1945, involved countries from both the Allies and Axis powers and resulted in millions of deaths due to genocides and war crimes. The Battle of Rabaul was a particularly humiliating defeat for the Allies as the Japanese forces overwhelmed the unsuspecting kangaroo-riding garrison. Eyewitnesses described scenes of pandemonium as koalas fled up gum trees and wallabies hopped for their lives. One eyewitness, Bruce Crocodile Dundee, said, It was like something out of a B-grade war movie. I mean, we didn't stand a bristle chance against those blighters. New Britain, known for its active volcanoes and strategic coconut reserves, fell into enemy hands within hours. The territory of New Guinea remained an Australian-administered trust territory until 1975, until it finally managed to pass its driving test and move out of home. 1793. Well, it's the news that's got all of Europe talking like a drunk Cossack. The Russian Empire and the Kingdom of Prussia have decided to redraw the map of Europe over a game of risk. Sorry, I mean partitions. This time, it's the turn of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth to be carved up like a Christmas goose. The Russian Empire, known for its love of vodka and wearing hats indoors, and Prussia, famous for their pickles and military parades, have gobbled up more land than at an all-you-can-eat buffet. The poor old Poles and Lithuanians are left with just memories and a slightly smaller postal code. But what does this mean for the future? Well, if you're in neighbouring countries like Austria or Turkey, the country not the bird, I'd start practising your squats if you know what I mean. And as for the Poles and Lithuanians, looks like it's back to square Danzig for them. 1967. Milton Keynes, the town that's got it all except for a personality, has been rocked by controversy today. It seems that one of its residents, Derek Disaster Davies, has been caught with his trousers down and his pants on fire. Neighbours were quick to react. I always knew he was a bit of an arsonist, said Doris Pantstaker, 83. He never joined in with our nude Thursdays. The local constabulary were called to the scene but found nothing suspicious other than Milton Keynes itself. Chief Inspector Brian Bungle Bumblestring said, It's a right pickle, this one. We've never had anything like this since we found WPC Jenkins in the hedge with her helmet on back to front. The incident has sent shockwaves through the community, which is saying something as they usually only get 3G at best. A spokesperson for Buckinghamshire Council said, We're taking this very seriously. Because if we don't, no one else will. The investigation continue, slowly due to roadworks. News bang, blowing the lid off the lies one scoop at a time. Bringing you the day's meteorological happenings, here's Shakanaka Giles. 
A frosty morning greets the UK, as if the country's dipped its toes into a freezer. Londoners don your winter coats, for temperatures will linger around 2 degrees Celsius. Brrr. Across the Midlands, it's a different story, a bit like a grumpy bear, awakening from hibernation, expect foggy mornings and chilly afternoons. Scotland and uh, Northern Ireland will see wintry showers, akin to shaking a snow globe over the landscape. Now, on to Wales. A crisp day awaits with sunny spells, the perfect weather for some outdoor adventures. And finally, to the southwest, it'll be cloudy with a chance of light rain. Nothing that can't be solved with a hot cup of tea and good company. In summary, frosty starts, grumpy fogs, wintry wonders and drizzly days. Stay warm and that's all the weather. In 1942, in a sobering reminder of the horrors of World War II, Japan launched a brutal invasion of New Britain in the Australian territory of New Guinea. This devastating conflict, spanning from 1939 to 1945, claimed millions of lives and saw the use of aircraft and even nuclear weapons. The Battle of Rabaul proved to be a disastrous defeat for the Allies, as the Japanese swiftly overwhelmed the Australian garrison. New Britain, an island teeming with active volcanoes, is the largest in the Bismarck archipelago. The territory of New Guinea was under Australian administration until 1975. To delve deeper into this dark chapter in history, we turn to our correspondent, Brian Bastable. The whir of warplanes blots out the sultry cooing of doves. Smoke fills my lungs, thick and cloying as a camel's spit. The air is alive with bullets, each one singing its deadly song. This is Rabul, New Britain, in the heart of the South Pacific, where I stand now amidst a battlefield soaked in blood and tears. A once tranquil paradise turned hellscape by man's insatiable thirst for power and dominance. From behind me echoes the distant rumble of an artillery barrage. Before me lies a scene from Dante's darkest nightmare. Bodies strewn about like broken toys after a child's tantrum. I am Brian Bastable, your guide through this inferno, reporting live from 1942 as history repeats itself on this very spot. The war between allies and Axis rages around me, planes strafing and bombing without mercy or respite. Volcanoes here on New Britain remain silent but watchful spectators to humanity's self-destructive dance with death. They remind us that even nature has limits to its patience when faced with such unrelenting chaos and destruction wrought by mankind's hand. Yet despite the carnage surrounding me, life persists against all odds. Soldiers clinging on to existence with dogged determination. Civilians cowering in fear, yet finding solace in each other's arms amidst the storm of steel and fire. But let not our focus shift entirely towards those caught up directly in this brutal conflict. Remember too those far removed from these shores whose lives are irrevocably changed by decisions made here today. 
decisions that will shape tomorrow's world long after these scars have faded away. Or perhaps not faded at all, but etched eternally into our collective consciousness as monuments to folly and hubris, to pride before fall. And so we continue to bear witness to these events unfolding around us because it matters not just what happened, but how we remember it, lest we forget, forget, never, not if I can help it. This is Brian Bastable signing off for Newsbang. In a grim reminder of the relentless tide of global terror, American journalist Daniel Pearl met a tragic end at the hands of Al-Qaeda operatives in Karachi, Pakistan. The city, a bustling hub of industry and finance, was left reeling from the atrocity committed by the infamous terrorist group. As we grapple with the enormity of this senseless act, Newsbank correspondent Ken Shit has been investigating the fallout from this horrific event. Ken, take us through your findings. In the dank and stinking sewers of human depravity, we find ourselves in the godforsaken year of our Lord, 2002. An era where the evening show is underway and the clock ticks like a time bomb, counting down to a catastrophic explosion of despair. The evening news anchor, with the face of a fallen angel, delivers the devastating details of the diabolical deed that has just been done. Daniel Pearl, an American journalist, has been kidnapped and murdered by the scum of the earth, the Al-Qaeda agents. These are the same cockroaches responsible for the attacks on the US and its allies. Karachi, the largest city in Pakistan, is a cesspool of chaos where the premier industrial and financial center serves as a breeding ground for these brain-dead terrorists. It's a city that never sleeps, where the only thing that's awake is the stench of fear and the acrid smell of gunpowder. This is Ken Shit, bringing you the news that makes your blood boil and your heart race with fury. But remember, folks, don't be racist. After all, we're all just humans, even the ones who do inhuman things. Adieu. 1997. In a momentous stride for gender equality, Madeleine Albright shattered the glass ceiling, ascending to the esteemed position of the United States' first female Secretary of State. Her tenure, spanning from 1997 to 2001, not only marked a trailblazing era for women in politics but also left an indelible imprint on international diplomacy. Over to Hardiman Pesto for more on this groundbreaking figure and her indomitable spirit. Martin, I'm here in Washington, D.C., where history has just been made. Madeleine Albright has become the first female Secretary of State. That's right, Pesto. Do you have the new Secretary with you? Can we speak to her? Unfortunately, she's unavailable right now, Martin, but I have her assistant. I'm Jane Smith with me. Hello, Jane. Hi there. Hello, Mrs. Smith. Can you tell us how Ms. Albright is feeling right now about her historic appointment? Oh, she's thrilled. She can't believe she's the first woman in this role. Says she won't be the last, though. Wonderful. And what are her plans for the role? Any policy changes we can expect? Well, certainly she wants to champion women's rights globally, and she'll be getting straight to work with Russia and China on nuclear arms control. Excellent. Now, Pesto, what about the handover from the previous secretary, Warren Christopher? Any issues there? None whatsoever smooth as silk. In fact, Secretary Albright says she's grateful for all the great work Secretary Christopher did particularly on brokering peace in the former Yugoslavia. 
She says she'll be building on those successes. Back to you, Martin. Hold on a second, Pesto. Secretary Christopher left office in January 1996. Madeleine Albright wasn't even nominated until December 1996. How could she be thanking him for his successes as secretary when he left office nearly a year before she arrived? Oh, well, I meant she was just commenting generally on the fine work of previous secretaries of state. Setting the record straight on that. Back to you, Martin. Let's be clear here. This is a significant promotion for Ms. Albright, from being the UN ambassador to now the most senior cabinet member. Does she have the depth of foreign policy experience for this role? There are doubts in some circles. Well, Martin, she says her background as a professor of international relations and her recent role at the UN more than qualify her for this position. The president has full confidence in her abilities. Hmm. Well, Professor Pesto, your credentials seem as dubious as the new secretaries. I think this interview is over. Ah, uh, back to you, Martin. The news bang, pushing the envelope of truth and sticking it to the man. 1993. Our correspondent Calamity Prenderville takes us back to 1993 when two British innovators, Mark Andreessen and Eric Biner, launched the world's first popular web browser, Mosaic. <laughs> Good evening, Newsbang viewers. Calamity Prenderville here to bring you a slice of 1993 a time when the internet was still a toddler, learning to walk and chew gum at the same time. On this very day, a British duo, Mark Andreessen and Eric Biner, unveiled Mosaic, the world's first popular web browser. It was like a digital Swiss army knife, integrating multimedia and supporting multiple internet protocols. Imagine that, a single application to navigate the wild west of the World Wide Web. Now you might be thinking, Calamity, what's so special about this mosaic thingamajig? Well, let me tell you, it was revolutionary. It had an intuitive interface, making it easy for even the most technologically challenged individuals to use. And hold on to your hats, it even supported inline image display. Yes, you heard me right. You could see pictures while browsing. Andresen and Bina, two British tech whizzes, were hailed as heroes. They co-founded Netscape, a company that would later become a titan in the tech industry. Andreessen's net worth is now a staggering $1.7 billion, enough to buy a small island and declare himself king. Bina, on the other hand, is the co-creator of Mosaic and Netscape, a true testament to British innovation. So there you have it, folks, a little slice of 1993, a time when the internet was still a novelty and a British duo was at the forefront of it all. Could this be the future of computing? Well, considering we're now in 2024, I'd say they were on to something. This is Calamity Prenderville, signing off from Newsbang. Good night. Newsbang, cutting through the bullshit with the sword of truth. 1967. In a turn of events that has left the nation collectively scratching its head, the year is now 1967, and Milton Keynes, a planned city in Buckinghamshire, England, boasts a population of 264,349. A veritable utopia of parkland and woodland areas, it even boasts two sites of special scientific interest. Buckinghamshire, a ceremonial county in south-east England, now finds itself with Milton Keynes as its largest settlement. 
The question remains, how did this happen? And more importantly, what does one do with 264,349 new neighbours? And to shed light on these pressing matters is our correspondent Smithsonian Moss. Now at this point of the evening we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, culture vultures. It's your one and only Smithsonian Moss, and I'm here to drop some serious knowledge bombs on you. Tonight, we're talking about a place that's more planned than your average Instagram influencer's feed, Milton Keynes' baby. So picture this. The year is 1960-freaking-seven, and some big brain folks in England decide to play SimCity IRL. They're like, let's build a city but make it fashion. And thus, Milton Keynes was born, a place with more roundabouts than a drunk driver's worst nightmare. Now, let's get real for a sec. Milton Keynes is known for its parkland and woodland areas, and I'm not talking about your grandma's backyard garden. We've got sites of special scientific interest, which is just a fancy way of saying nature on steroids. And trust me, these trees have seen more action than your Tinder profile. But let's not forget Buckinghamshire the ceremonial county that's like the stage mom to Milton Keynes's child star. It's got history, it's got charm, and it's got a name that sounds like a fancy type of deer. If Buckinghamshire were a person, it'd be that one aunt who won't stop talking about her royal connections. And can we talk about the population? 264,349 people chose to live in a place that's more grid-like than your Excel spreadsheet. That's commitment, folks. These people are the unsung heroes of urban planning. So there you have it, folks. Milton Keynes, a city so well-planned, it makes your life look like a before picture in an infomercial. And Buckinghamshire, the county that's more English than a cup of tea in a rainstorm. Remember, if you're ever feeling lost, just head to Milton Keynes. You might not find your way out, but at least you'll enjoy the scenery. That's all from me, Smithsonian Moss your cultural compass in a world of roundabouts. Stay cheeky, stay edgy, and remember, if life gives you Milton Keynes, make roundabout lemonade. News bang. A spade is a spade and a shovel is a shovel. Uh, 1789. Today in 1789, Bishop John Carroll made a historic purchase, securing land for the establishment of Georgetown University. This groundbreaking transaction marked the inception of the oldest Catholic university in the United States. The man behind this momentous acquisition was none other than the first bishop of the Diocese of Baltimore, who would later ascend to become the inaugural archbishop. Georgetown University, a distinguished private Jesuit research institution nestled in Washington, D.C., proudly traces its roots back to this very day. Joining us now to delve deeper into this divine tale, is Pastor Kevin Monstrance. Good evening, ladies and gents. The name's Pastor Kevin Monstrance, though you can call me Kev if we're well enough acquainted, which reminds me of a chap I once knew called Clive Anklethwaite, who absolutely insisted everyone refer to him by his full Christian name at all times, made introductions a right chore, as you can imagine. Uh, Clive Anklethwaite, pleased to make your acquaintance, Clive. Clive Anklethwaite is the name. Don't wear it out now. No one could be bothered 
we just called him Clive, or Anklethwaite when he was being particularly tiresome, which was always. But I digress. I'm here tonight to regale you with a tale of academic ambition from America's early history. The year was 1789, and the leading Catholic clergyman was a bishop named John Carroll. Now Carroll had a dream of establishing a university for Catholic scholars in the newly formed United States. He found the perfect spot for it in Georgetown, purchasing the land himself. Well, it wasn't long before Georgetown University was up and running, and the rest, as they say, is academic history. Georgetown has since produced many fine scholars over the centuries. Why, I knew a Georgetown graduate once, a bright young chap called Phineas McGillicuddy. Educated fellow, old Phineas, but prone to distraction. I once observed him attempting to mail a letter by sticking it to a pigeon's foot with honey. The pigeon seemed less than cooperative. Reminds me of another avian-related mishap. There was a priest, let's call him Father O'Leary, who kept chickens in the parish backyard. One day before Mass, O'Leary discovers his prize rooster is missing. Well, he searches high and low to no avail. Finally, he decides he must proceed with Mass, minus the customary crowing to announce his arrival. O'Leary reaches the pulpit and begins delivering his sermon, when all of a sudden the church doors burst open and in struts the rooster. Feathers ruffled and chest puffed, the bird lets out an ear-piercing cock-a-doodle-doo before scurrying back outside. After a shocked pause, O'Leary continues with his sermon, but each time he starts a new point, that blasted rooster reappears to crow bombastically before exiting once more. By the fourth disruption, the flustered priest has had enough. Face beat red, he bellows. Will someone kindly wring that bird's neck so I may finish Mass in peace? A hush falls over the congregation until a lone voice replies. Gladly, Father, just as soon as you finish crowing. <laughs> well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Do take care and may your days be filled with more wisdom than wayward poultry. Cheerio. <laughs> And there's just time to look at tomorrow's headlines. The Times, Viet Cong leaders pancaked by Australian task force in Operation Coburg. The Telegraph go with surprise. British Navy's net German sea dogs in North Sea. There's a very good picture of sea. The Mail shows Cosmos 954 meltdown savours radioactive uproar across Canada's Northwest Territory. The Express have led with Operation Desert Oyster ends as seriously as it began. There's a photo there of a lamb. That's it. Due to a printing error today, thousands of BBC annual reports have been published without their middle pages. Now it's on with the news at 10 where you are. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs>